And again, uh, good morning and uh, a welcome. Uh, welcome to those of you who are in here. I can uh, see a number of you outside uh, in the shade and the sun. Um, and I know some of you are joining us online. I uh, want to warmly welcome each and every one of you, uh, especially if you're new or relatively new um, in gathering with us. Um, a warm welcome to you. It's great to be with you. Great to be uh, worshiping together. And this morning as we turn to God's Word, we're, we find ourselves in week three of a little five-week series that we're doing in the Psalms called Songs for Life, in which we're looking at a number of different Psalms, some very familiar to us, uh, others maybe not so much, but in each case, we're hopefully seeing the richness of the Psalm and discovering something of its usefulness and application to us in the living out of our daily lives. And this morning, I want us to look at Psalm 8. Uh, which is a uh, personal favorite of mine. It's a psalm in which David expresses wonder at creation and even more importantly, wonder at the God of creation. See, sometimes uh, when we look at the psalms, we discover that the psalmist is, is thinking about the acts that God has done. Uh, the ways that he has intervened in history, and that causes him to, to come to a place of wonder and worship. And other times, a psalmist maybe reflects on the knowledge of God. Psalm 139, for instance, marvels and wonders at the fact that he knows every thought before we know it. He knows when we stand up, when we sit down. He knows our words before they appear on our tongue. These two are all causes for us to come to the place of wonder and worship. But in the psalm that we're about to look at this morning, it's specifically about looking at creation and looking at the Creator and being blown away by it and by Him. And that's what this psalm, the psalmist is dwelling on here. And so this is Psalm 8. And I encourage you to follow along if you have your Bibles uh, with you, or certainly you'll find the text in your uh, worship guide as well. To the choir master, according to the Gittith, a psalm of David. O Lord, our Lord, how majestic is your name in all the earth. You have set your glory above the heavens. Out of the mouths of babies and infants, you have established strength because of your foes to still the enemy and the avenger. When I look at your heavens, the work of your fingers, the moon and the stars which you have set in place, what is man that you are mindful of him and the son of man that you care for him? Yet you've made him a little lower than the heavenly beings and crowned him with glory and honor. You've given him dominion over the works of your hands. You've put all things under his feet, all sheep and oxen and also the beasts of the field, the birds of the heavens and the fish of the sea, whatever passes along the paths of the seas. O Lord, our Lord, how majestic is your name in all the earth. This is the Word of God. The psalm opens and closes with the words, O Lord, our Lord, how majestic is your name in all the earth. And the rest of the psalm then gives us a sense of why it is that the name of God is truly majestic and unthinkably glorious. 
It's because, verse 1, his glory has been set above the heavens. And yet at the same time, verse 2, he has established strength from the mouths of infants and babies to silence the enemy. And that contrast is at the heart of the biblical picture of God. You may or may not worship the biblical God. You may or not be a, a, be a Christian here today. But this is at the heart of what we believe about God. That he is so high and lifted up. That he is so incomparably glorious. Higher than the heavens. And yet he is so present and so accessible to us. In and through the person of the Lord Jesus. That he's the kind of person whom babies can establish praise and strength for. Because he's so accessible and so humble, so high and yet so low at the same time, if you will. He is utterly other than us, shining brighter than the sun. And yet he comes so close to us that even toddlers can declare his praise. To put a sock in the mouth of the devil, if you like. That's what it says, to silence the enemy and the avenger. And God is like that. He's a God whom the little child can praise, and yet a God who has set his glory above the heavens. And theologians talk about that using the language of transcendence and imminence, right? Up here, otherness, and very present here-ness at the same time. God's name is majestic and excellent because he is praised by the cherubim, and by the children. He's glorified in the planets and in the playgroup. Oh Lord, our Lord, how majestic is your name in all the earth. And that's the same logic then that underpins the rest of the psalm, and particularly the very famous bit in verses 3 and 4, which is where I want to spend a large part of our time this morning. When I look at your heavens, the work of your fingers, the moon and the stars which you've set in place, what is man, what is a human being that you are mindful of him and the son of man that you care for him? In other words, God, when I look at the sky, I am staggered by how powerful and glorious you are. And then I just cannot get my head around how it is that you know who I am, let alone that you care for me in the way that you clearly do. And that fusion of the very high and the very low comes together not just in verses 1 and 2, but in verses 3 and 4 as well. The psalmist is saying, I, I marvel at the sky, and it makes me astonished, shocked, that you could exercise any care whatsoever about someone as small as me. And I totally agree with him on this. I mean, think about the sun for a moment. This is a picture of the sun. I think you're familiar with its work, I'm sure. You disappear too far from the sun on planet Earth, like they do in Antarctica for a few months a year. It disappears to minus 70 degrees. Right? We need this thing. This thing is vital for our lives. But it's 93 million miles away. It takes light 8 minutes and 19 seconds to reach Earth. 
I mean, the sun could have stopped when I started this message. It could have just disappeared, and we'd only just be finding out right now. Uh, the illustration that I, I remember that I just couldn't quite believe was true the first time I heard it, but, but if the earth, all of the earth and everything in it, from Mount Everest to the deepest ocean trenches and everything else, if the earth is the size of a pea, then the sun is more than 80 yards away. And the nearest star would be somewhere in the middle of the Indian Ocean. And I just marvel when I think about the scale of the heavens. And this is just one star, and not a particularly glorious one at that. But as I say, when you get away, the temperatures dip to minus 70 degrees, and when it comes out in all of its brilliance, you and I can barely stand it. We have to go inside. We have to find shelter. We have to wear a hat or go into air conditioning. The sun, you could fit 330,000 versions of the earth into the sun. Every second, the sun is belching forth energy at an astounding rate. It's basically every second more energy is produced by the sun than human beings have collectively generated in our entire history. 90 million one megaton nuclear bombs coming off the sun in energy every second. It's losing five and a half million tons of its own mass every second. Right? Like that's, like a, that's like a million African bull elephants flying off the sun every second. It's got, it's got a million elephants smaller every second. Right now, just sitting up there, not visibly getting any smaller, but these massive amounts of, of weight are coming off, and the sun is so large that we don't even notice. And by the way, I don't think David knew any of that stuff. I think David was simply looking at the sky and marveling and realizing that the God who created that was mindful of him. That was almost too terrifying to understand or comprehend. But as he looks at these things that are above him and he, he considers how enormous and incredibly complex the universe is, he's, he's, he's moved to wonder at the mindfulness of God towards us. What is man that you are mindful of him? And creation does have a way of making us feel pretty small at times, doesn't it? I don't know if you're, you've experienced this, but there have been moments in my life where I've been looking at a beautiful, magnificent scene or looking up at the stars in the sky, and I just get blown away with a sense of how much bigger these things are than me. And creation has a way of of making us feel very small. In fact, the astronomer Carl Sagan wrote in his book The Varieties of Scientific Experience about this very phenomenon. He said this, Many religions have attempted to make statues of their gods very large. And the idea, I suppose, is to make us feel small. But if that's their purpose, they can keep their paltry icons. We need only look up if we wish to feel small. It's after an exercise such as this that many people conclude that the religious sensibility is inevitable. He says, if we want to feel small, if we want to understand just how minuscule we are in comparison to the world, we don't need to look at icons or statues. Just look up. The sky will do the trick. And it's, he says it's inevitable when you do that. And at times, it'll, it'll move you to think about religious questions. 
And I think many of us have found that to be, to be the case. I imagine that many of us, if not all of us, have at least at some point found ourselves looking at something big in this world and thinking, is there something more? Now, I know that many will come to very different answers to that questions, but, but I think it is an almost universal human experience at some point to look at the stars, to look at the world and to think, is there something more? And I think that for many of us, we have those moments where, where we, 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 we look at the stars, we look at creation, and at least contemplate the idea that there may be something more. There may be a God. No wonder the psalmist says, I look up at the sky, I look at the sun and the moon and the stars, and I just think, what is man that you are, are mindful? And I, I'm, just, I'm just living on this tiny speck of the universe, the most insignificant, tiny little bit of this enormous, complex creation. What is mankind that you're mindful of us? Yet he has not only been mindful of us, he says he cares for us, and he's made us just a little bit lower than the angels and crowned us with glory and honor. I mean, it's, it is mind-blowing stuff. This, the psalmist is just blown away by it. By, he is full of awe and wonder at the fact that God not only created and, and, and sustains that, you know, that, all that he sees, but also knows about and cares about each one of us. And the psalmist is so deeply aware of his smallness and God's comparative bigness that he speaks of it in kind of childlike terms. He, he recognizes that there's a certain childlike wonder and awe to viewing the world. He says this, verse 2, Out of the mouths of babies and infants you have established strength because of your foes to silence the enemy and the avenger. The psalmist recognizes that there's kind of a, a childlike nature of wonder and awe. And he contrasts a, a child on the one hand and an adult on the other. And in fact, not just a child and an adult, but really a, a, a weak sort of young infant on the one hand and a fully grown adult, a warrior, a foe, an avenger on the other hand. And he says, actually, the kid's way of seeing the world is probably more accurate than the grown man who thinks he is strong and self-sufficient. I mean, children are, are amazing, aren't they? Well, most children are. They're, they're, they're amazing. I, I mean, I'm constantly blown away by how children have this amazing capacity to, to just delight in things that I find completely and utterly bore, boring. You know what I mean? I, I mean, you spend any time with kids, and they just have this amazing capacity to do the same things over and over and over again. I just think, this is so dull. Can we please move on to the next thing? I mean, they're like putting blocks on top of each other again and again. And you think, Are, you're still finding that fun? I'm like, let's move on. Or you play catch with them. I don't mean... You know, with them, but with a ball. But, you, but you, you throw a child a ball, and they catch the thing, and they just explode with enthusiasm as if they've just done the most amazing thing ever. And I'm like, you caught a ball. But, but you, kind of, you kind of applaud them, you know, well, well done, well done. Throw it back to me. It goes nowhere near you. You pick it up. You throw it to them again. They catch it. They explode with amazement as if, again, it's the most miraculous thing. It's the same thing you did a second ago. Okay, you haven't got bored yet? 
And, and they keep doing it for like 20 minutes. And eventually you're like, next game, please. Anything else? And they're like, again, again, again. And you think, how do you have the capacity for just amazement at monotony? I don't understand it. Well, G.K. Chesterton, in his book, Orthodoxy, he says that actually it's a very profound thing that children do not get tired of repetition. And he says, if you actually reflect on that a little bit, you may well find that that tells us something very profound about the character of God. Because it says, if you observe the world, you'll find that it is full of repetition. The sun rises and sets. The stars come out in the sky. Planets move. Seasons come and go. Leaves grow and drop. And we see routine everywhere in the world. And for us, particularly with our scientific bent or our scientific mind, we can tend to get rather blasé about the routines in the world. But he says maybe routine actually tells us something profound about the delight of God. He puts it like this. He writes, a child kicks his legs rhythmically through excess, not absence of life. Because children have abounding vitality, because they are in spirit fierce and free, therefore they want things repeated and unchanged. They always say, do it again. And the grown-up person does it again until he is nearly dead, which I'm sure parents can understand and relate to. For grown-up people, he says, are not strong enough to exalt in monotony but perhaps God is strong enough to exalt in monotony. It is possible that God says every morning, do it again to the sun, and every evening, do it again to the moon. It may not be automatic necessity that makes all daisies alike. It may be that God makes every daisy separately, but has never got tired of making them. It may be that he has the eternal appetite of infancy, for we have sinned and grown old, and our Father is younger than we. The repetition in nature may not be a mere recurrence. It may be theatrical encore. Heaven may encore the bird who laid an egg. I love that way of putting it, so beautiful and poetic. Have you ever thought about the delight of God? When you find yourself feeling tired of life, just getting used to the way things work, have you ever thought that maybe God still delights in the routines, in the seasons, in the things that we are just so blasé about? Have you ever thought that, that maybe God throws the sun up like a ball every morning? Or that when it sets in the evening, he might be like a child that catches it and, and bursts out with enthusiasm, having done it for the millionth time, but enjoying it as if it's the first time ever. Have you ever thought about the delight and wonder and awe that God himself may feel? Of course, we understand that God doesn't actually throw the sun up in the air like a ball. We, we know that he's not sitting in a workshop making daisies, all of them exactly the same. But I would put it to you that, that we should allow, you shouldn't allow you know, our understanding of science and the way the solar system works and all of those things which are, are good to, to, to quash our sense of wonder at the world and our wonder at the creator of it all. There's a sobering passage in Matthew 21 where 
Jesus is in the temple and he actually quotes the psalm, Psalm 8, verse 2. It says, it says in Matthew 21, the blind and the lame came to him at the temple and he, and he healed them. But when the chief priests and the teachers of the law saw the wonderful things that he did and the children crying out in the temple, Hosanna to the son of David, they were indignant and they said to him, do you hear what these children are saying? Yes, replied Jesus. Have you never read? And then he quotes Psalm 8, 2. From the lips of children and infants, you, Lord, have called forth your praise. So Jesus is healing people in the temple of all places. I mean, you know, the place where you should be able to, to get away with doing some religious stuff. And Jesus is there, and the sick people are coming, and he's healing them. And the kids are seeing it, and they're just crazy with excitement. And they're shouting out, Hosanna to the Son of David, which means that they recognize who Jesus is. That, that, that he is the Son of David, the king that they've been waiting for for centuries and centuries. And so the kids are seeing these miracles happen, and they're recognizing... Something about God and his character and, and, and what he's about. And they're just so excited. And the chief priests look at it a bit indignantly and say, Jesus, do you see what these kids are doing? You know, they're getting all excited about these miracles. Do you hear what they're saying? And Jesus quotes Psalm 8. says, yeah, yeah. Don't you know Psalm 8, verse 2? From the mouths of infants, Lord, you have called forth your praise. And he doesn't quote the second half of Psalm 8, verse 2. And I think, I don't think he needs to. I think it's implicit there. He's, he, he's saying, do you remember how that psalm goes? From the lips of infants, Lord, you will silence your foes and your enemies. And I think Jesus is saying in a kind of cutting but subtle way, who are you, chief priests? Who are, who are you in this picture? The kids are seeing things the way they are. The kids have a correct, accurate understanding of this world and who I am and what I'm about. I think you're in danger of missing out. My chief priests are, were so indignant at the ex expression of awe and wonder that the children were declaring that they just turned their, their nose at it and failed to recognize what God was doing. And the reason I find that passage sobering is because, to be honest, I find that I'm often, I'm probably a little bit more like the chief priest and a little less like the kids. You know what I mean? I, I think sometimes I'm more like the chief priest. This world and its creator are absolutely incredible. So many things happen every day for which I should be incredibly, exceedingly thankful. And I can just miss them. Because I'm just tired of life at times, or I just, you know, just focus on being orderly or property, proper or whatever. And so I fail to recognize the gifts that I receive every day, life and breath and health and love and family and friends. I don't deserve those things. They're gifts. They're miracles. We have sinned and grown old, says Chesterton, and our father is younger than we. I complain when the world doesn't work the way I want it to. I barely notice when it works the same way every day. I'm a bit too much like the chief priests and not enough like the kids. Listen, the sun is just the start of it in the sky above. Let's, let's step back for, uh, for a moment and consider something greater. This is the horsehead nebula. Isn't it beautiful? It's a picture.
pink glow which is caused by the hydrogen behind the, 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 the nebula which is lit up like a Christmas tree by the uh, a nearby Sigma Orionis. So what you see actually is the, the horsehead nebula, if you like, is practically on top of the left hand of the three stars of Orion's belt. When you look at the night sky and see those, those three stars in a row, Orion's belt, the, the left one, this nebula is right in front of that, and that's why it's lit up this way. Light travels at 5.88 trillion miles per year. It takes 1,600 years to get from the horsehead nebula to you. So this picture is what it looked like not what it looks like now. This is a picture of what it looked like 1,600 years ago when the Roman Empire was still around. Right? If, I, if it had disappeared during the Roman Empire, we would just be finding out now. What it looks like now will not be known to people on earth until the year 3,700. I think it's fair to say that human beings are generally pretty impressed with the things that we've made, right? Cars, the internet, vaccinations, dishwashers, iPhones, breakfast cereals. We, we quite like the things we've made. You know, we think, yeah, look at this stuff. Stuff I've made, stuff I've built. But I also think it's fair to say that when you look at the Horsehead Nebula, you find yourself aware that you're dealing with a creator of an entirely different order altogether. Lord, when I consider the heavens, the work of your hands, not just mine, what is man that you are mindful of him and the son of man that you care for him? Now let's step back a little bit further and look at something even greater. This is... Uh, Ring Galaxy AM 644-741, right? Catchy title, I'm sure you'll agree. But this ring galaxy is formed by a collision between two galaxies. So what happens is when galaxies collide, they kind of pass through each other. And the individual stars don't very often come in contact with one another because there's obviously large spaces in between the, the stars. So kind, they kind of do this. And so the shape of this ring is caused by the gravitational disruption caused by an entire small galaxy passing through a large one. And that causes the, a wave of stars to cascade out like ripples on a pond. The blue ring you can see in the picture is 150,000 light years wide. So it takes light at 5.88 trillion miles a year. It takes light 150,000 years to travel from one side of it to the other. And it's made up of stars that even astronomers call extremely bright and massive stars. Things like this, Isaiah didn't know this, David didn't know this, Moses didn't know this. When they looked up, when Isaiah said, lift up your eyes and see who created these. He who brings out the hosts by number, calling them by name, by the greatness of his might and because he's strong in power, not one is missing. And I think that, 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 that we know more about them than, because we know more about them than Isaiah and David and Moses, that actually increases the scale of glory that is due to the one who created them in our eyes. The ring galaxy is 300 million light years away. You travel at 5.88 trillion miles a year for 300 million years and you'll get there. 
And in a tiny aside, in Genesis 1, Moses said, he also made the stars. There are over 400 billion stars in our galaxy alone. And scientists claim to have been able to map the universe within 1% accuracy. And they have suggested that there are at least 1.2 million galaxies in the universe. 400 billion stars in our galaxy 1.2 million galaxies in the universe. I'll let you do the math. And Moses describes it with an almost throwaway phrase. And also the stars. Now let's step back. Running out of time, but I really want you to see this. Let's step back and see something even greater. And There's a short video I want to play, just a few minutes long, that provides even some more perspective on some of the things that are even further out in space than the ones that we've seen when we see, like the psalmist, when we consider the heavens, this is what we're considering.
He also made the stars. And hopefully the scale of all of this gives you some, the same perspective it gives me. By most estimates, there are more stars in the sky than there are grains of sand on all the beaches and deserts and sandboxes on planet Earth. People debate by how much it depends on estimates, but a factor of 10 or 20 or so more stars in the sky than there are grains of sand on the beaches and deserts in the world. And if that doesn't make you feel small enough, there are more atoms in one grain of sand than there are in the stars in the sky. Oh Lord, our Lord, how manifold are your works. In wisdom you've made them all. O Lord, O Lord, how majestic is your name in all the earth. You have set your glory above the heavens. I mean, just for a moment, consider how great and magnificent must be the the God who made all of this. And then let's step back a bit and see something even greater. And this is my favorite. This, is the, this one is amazing. The, the scripture says that it shows the majesty and the glory of God more clearly than anything else. You ready? When I look at your heavens, the work of your fingers, the moon and the stars that you've set in place, what is man that you are mindful of him and the son of man that you care for him? David had no idea how large were the heavens and how far away was the moon and how numerous were the stars. And nor did he have any idea how far would go to show his mindfulness of humanity and how much he would care for the sons and daughters of man. How far he would go to, if you like, crown them with glory and honor and restore them, us, to the place of privilege and dignity that we were created for, yet which had been ruined by sin. David had no idea how far God would go at, at, at this point in time. He had no idea that, that the God who holds the stars in his hands would someday display scars in those very same hands. And yet, he could still use these things as reason to praise God for his excellence name. How much more can we, with the cross behind us and the galaxies above us, give thanks to him for for setting his glory above the heavens and demonstrating his care and love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Let's pray. Oh Lord, our Lord, how majestic is your name in all the earth. You've set your glory above the heavens. Out of the mouths of of babies and infants, you have ordained strength that you might silence the enemy and the avenger. Oh Lord, when we consider, when we go out into the night sky and look up and see the glory of what you've made, the moon, the stars, the sun, and the galaxies, we just cannot understand why you would care for us as you do. And yet you've made us a little bit lower than the angels and you've crowned us with glory and you've seated us above the entire animal kingdom and everything in it. Oh Lord, our Lord, how majestic is your name in all the earth. Amen.